seating problem, I think. So they've asked that people would uh, identify some seats near them so people in the back can have a seat or, uh, there you go, okay. Fantastic. Uh, do you resonate with that song? Can you relate to that? Uh, where are you hurting right now? Uh, it's easy to look at a group of people like this, good-looking, intelligent people. <laughs> Dynamic, world-changing people. Life of the party people. And, and assume that everything is just fine. Uh, unless you were, came in here in a full body cast, it's pretty hard to tell how you might be hurting. But I'm guessing there's a lot of hurting people sitting here today. Statistically, uh, at any given time, one out of four people are in deep, deep pain. 25% of this group is in deep, deep pain, and everybody else is in various degrees of pain. So, how are you doing with that? How are, how are you holding on? Who's holding on to you? Uh, to whom do you turn? We're in the middle of this series uh, in Matthew. Everybody follows someone. Who are you following? Uh, today we're going to be walking through Matthew 11, but before we get into the text, I just want to make the obvious point. Everybody hurts. Everybody cries. Everybody hurts sometimes. So who's holding you up? Uh, I invite you to hold on to Jesus. And be comforted in the assurance that Jesus is holding on to you. Perhaps you've had that experience, something like what Kalina was expressing. And you feel like you're just holding on. And at some point, you just want to let go. And if you do let go, it's an odd feeling that you don't move because you realize, oh, my God, you are holding on to me. I've been thinking it's me holding on to you. You have been holding on to me the whole time. Uh, this is the nature of the God that we've gathered here to worship today. He's inviting us to come close to him, to hold on to him, knowing that he is going to hold on to us. He comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others in theirs. I love the way the Apostle Paul, an antagonist against Jesus, who became a, an ardent follower of Jesus uh, and a leader among Jesus' people. And he writes to some people in a place going through a lot of pain. <clears throat> and this is in 1 Corinthians. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive he will never leave you or forsake you. And so this is a great framing for where we're going in the next few moments as we reflect on, on parts of Matthew 11. I said last week, we sent out a thing called Read, Think, Pray every week. And it gives you a heads up about what we're going to be doing on Sunday morning. So if you're not on that email list, get on that email list. By giving us your email address, you'll get on that, on that distribution. Uh, because we want people to walk in here with a sense of where we're going. Um, and so... Uh, we're going to work through parts of gospel, uh, the, the chapter uh, 11th chapter of Matthew's gospel and so as you get the read, think, and pray we'll give you a larger perspective to read and then we don't have enough time each week to talk about the entire uh, text that we've covered in read, think, pray. So we're going to look at very one, one, one very specific part of this gospel and it's a conversation between Jesus and some people who are representing a man named John the Baptist who's actually Jesus's cousin. <laughs> So here we are in Matthew 11, uh, verses 1 to 3. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, 
He had gathered them. We saw this last week in chapter 10. And he gathers these disciples and he instructs them, hey, go out and, and announce the good news of the, of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is near. And he, and he sends them off. And it says, he went then, uh, likewise, to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. This is the northern part of Israel. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, the Messiah being a reference to Jesus, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, if you've never heard anything out of the Bible, this is a reasonable question. You're thinking, oh, that's an interesting thing. But if you've, if, if you've been following with us in Matthew, uh, or if you've been following Christ for a while, you're familiar with his word, you're saying, that's kind of, that's kind of an odd question. That's sort of an odd question. Why is John asking this? Because John knows who Jesus is. Uh, we know that before this point, uh, John is talking to a guy named Andrew, who became a follower of Jesus. But as Jesus walked by, he says to Andrew, hey, there goes the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. John knew who he was talking about, talking about Jesus. Earlier in Matthew, chapter 3, we saw that Jesus comes to John while John is down uh, in, in the deserty part of, or the whole part of southern Israel is deserty. But, but down by the Dead Sea, uh, and, and near the city of Jericho, he goes down to the Jordan River, a beautiful river that runs through the whole country. And John is baptizing people. And Jesus says, I want to be baptized by you. And John says, you should be baptizing me. I don't deserve to do this. But he does. And as he baptizes Jesus, a dove lands on Jesus. And it says, the heavens opened up. And, and the voice of God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. When John was standing there, seeing this and hearing this. So John knows who Jesus is. So <clears throat> why would John send this message to a messenger? Hey, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? Is he being impatient? What are you waiting for? Or is he being impertinent? Do you have any idea what you're doing? Can you do it differently and better? So is he impatient? Is he impertinent? I don't think so. Uh, no, I think what was going on here is that he was in prison. And I want to ask for a show of hands. How many of you have ever been in prison as a guest of the state <laughs> or the government? But how many of you have just ever been in a prison just to visit somebody or do ministry? Raise your hand. It's not a place you'd, you consider spot-like. It's not a place you say, you know what, I'm so tired of living near the, near the beach, I want to move into a prison cell. <laughs> and our prisons are actually not bad. Um, uh, a, a, a famous actor died this week, John Hurt, and he, was, he, he won an Academy Award nomination for, for depicting a prisoner in a movie called Midnight Express. A long, long time ago this movie came out, based on a true story, a guy gets caught smoking uh, hashish, American guy, a kid. He gets caught smuggling dope in Turkey. They throw him in prison. It's outrageous. Anybody who's ever seen that movie, first of all, didn't want to leave their house or ever go to Turkey. <laughs> and, and eventually Oliver Stone had to apologize to the Turkish government because he made it look so horrific like the people were barbaric. But a prison is not a place of anything but pain. And John is in prison. I, I want to show you a picture of, of, the, of the location of John's prison. Uh, this is a moonscape that you're seeing, and that high point that's flat once held a fortress built by Herod the king. 
it was a form just to keep all the, all the Arabian uh, whores away from Israel. This is, the top of that is 4,000 feet above the water that you see behind it, which is the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth. This is a total God-forsaken wilderness. It's a place of pain. It's, it's on the eastern side of the, of the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, so what you're looking at is toward the west, toward Israel. If all around you and behind you in this picture is, this, is the country of Jordan. And so this was an impregnable fortress. And next picture shows you what the archaeological reconstruction looks like of the fortress that was there and the small community around it and the prison that was attached to it. It was a godforsaken place. Life was good in the palace, not so good in the prison. Prison is a desolate, desolate and dangerous place. It's a place of despair. Why was John in prison? John was in prison because he had stood up to power. He had confronted the king, Herod, whose father was Herod uh, that was trying to kill Jesus when Jesus was born, who built the temple in Jerusalem and actually built all these forts. And now Herod, the son, is as evil as his father. And Herod marries his half-sister, Herodias, who was married to his half-brother, also named Herod, Herod II. This guy, Herod Antipas, is his name. He's just not a really great um, poster child for citizen of the year. And he's oppressing the people, and the people don't like it, and it's scandalous. And so John just calls him out and says, that is wrong. And it, it landed him in prison. This Herod and his wife Herodias were paranoid about the way they were perceived by the public, politically and in every other way. Herodias, the wife, was especially ticked off that John had the gall to call her um, out in public. So she was looking for a way to get at John. She had a daughter named Salome. Salome came out and did this exotic, pr provocative dance. And it was so, so inspiring to Herod. He said, ask me for anything you want. And with the, with the coaching of her mom, she said, I want the head of John the Baptist. And John was beheaded. So this is a horrible uh, scenario. And John knew he was in a, a really dark, dark place. So out of that dark, dark place, I believe John, this courageous man. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew, that, in, other, in other parts of that chapter 11, he said, you know, when you went out to the Jordan River to see John, what did you expect to see? A reed blowing in the wind, a little wimpy reed blowing here by, back and forth by the wind? Insubstantial? Or did you expect to see some guy dressed like he lives in a palace? No, you went to see a prophet. And the, the whole subtext is you went to see a courageous man who confronted an evil king. You stood up for righteousness and announced the kingdom of God being present. So here is this courageous man, emotionally suffering in isolation. Everybody hurts. Everybody cries. Everybody hurts sometimes. We live in a time when we do not want our leaders to hurt or be in pain or show weakness. Whether it's the church or the community, the country, or wherever. And so people don't want to admit their pain. And I think this question comes out of John's pain. He knows he will likely die in prison, and he wonders if he got it right. Did I hear what I thought I heard? Did I see what I thought I saw? Is this what I think it is? Or am I delusional? You know, if you put me in prison, uh, it wouldn't be very long before I would sign anything or say anything. I could go for maybe 10, 20 minutes. 
I know people who have been in prisoner of war camps in both World War II and in Vietnam. When I asked them how they endured, they said, uh, it was horrible. I would have said or done anything. Have we all done that? Wondering if things could have turned out better. Have I gotten it right? Could I have done it differently? Why am I, why am I here where I am instead of where I thought I would be? This despair of second-guessing yourself is overwhelming. It's dark, dark, dark. Maybe it's the way you've treated your spouse. Maybe it's the way you've treated your kids. Maybe it's the way you were treated as a kid or a spouse. Maybe it's the, the state of the nation or the world. Maybe it's, it's the hurt and the harm you've experienced along the way. Maybe it's the things you've done that you wish you could undo. I don't know. But that darkness and despair moves us to second-guess and question ourselves. Is this it? And so I can only imagine John saying, look, I know what I know. I, I think I, I'm clear on what I've seen. I know you. You're my cousin. You are the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. But, but I, I, I need to ask this question. What I love here is that Jesus doesn't take offense or rebuke John's vulnerability. He's like, what? You again? What? That's a dumb question. Well, for your information, go back and tell John. You notice that throughout the Bible, Jesus never takes offense at vulnerability. Never, ever, ever does Jesus ever rebuke people in their vulnerability. What do you see Jesus doing over and over and over again consistently in the face of one's vulnerability? He's kind and he's gentle. He's humble. As busy as he would be, people would come up to him and he would stop and pay attention to them. Which we also see, though, in Jesus is he's always, he's always challenging people's sense of invincibility. If you pass yourself off as someone invincible, he will, he, will, he will look at you in the eye and say, really? Tell me about that, you whitewashed sepulcher. You whitewashed grave. Nice robes. Too bad it's an empty suit. So Jesus was all about confronting invincibility and welcoming vulnerability. If you don't learn anything else in life but this... If you want to grow and live a deep, satisfying life, become vulnerable. And stop pretending you're invincible. And in this moment of unguarded, humble, maybe even uh, embarrassing humility, John puts it all out there. And what we see Jesus saying is this, humbly and gently, he simply tells John what he's doing. By way of comfort and clarity, he simply says, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Uh, what's really neat about this summary, he's paraphrasing something that was part of his ministry. When he started his ministry, Jesus quoted in front of everybody at the synagogue, Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 61, 1. And Isaiah the prophet talked about what the Messiah would sound like, look like, and do. And so Jesus had said this when he started his ministry. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Notice in the paraphrase that he sends back to John by way of message. He, he basically recaps all of that except for the phrase and release from darkness for the captives. He knows uh, that this is the end for John. 
in a very tender, gentle way. He's basically building. He says, simply tell John. And what is he really telling John? John, you have fulfilled your mission. John, you got it right. John, it is as you said it would be. The kingdom of God is breaking out. It's here and near. And then in that chapter, he references Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of Israel's history. So it's like John, he, John, uh, Jesus says to the crowds, after these people go back to convey the message of John, you know, John was like Elijah. And, and for those of us uh, who maybe are new to the Bible, you say, well, okay, what does that mean? Elijah was the guy that took on a woman named Jezebel and her husband, the king Ahab. He took on 400 prophets of Baal. He did all these things that, would, that delivered Israel from the, the grip of idolatry into a place where they, they came back to the living God, at least for a period of time. And he was so exhausted and so defeated, he, he, he went back into the desert and said, Lord, I'm done. It's over. And God ministered to him in a beautiful way. So much so that every Passover, especially at the time of Jesus and since then, before then, at every Passover, which is a special meal, they'll talk about the people being taken out of captivity in Egypt. When, when any Jew would celebrate that, there was always a chair that was empty and always a cup of wine that was never touched or even referred to. It was called the Elijah chair and the Elijah cup. So Jesus is saying to John, you have done what Elijah would do because every rabbi believed that the Messiah would only come if Elijah came to prepare the way. And John, you have met that criteria. You have prepared the way. To the point that when Jesus at his last supper had his disciples around him celebrating the Passover, he took a piece of bread that at every Passover meal, they would hide a piece of bread, symbolically hide it, and put it aside. And at the end of the meal, they'd pull the bread out. It's called the afikomen, with the last thing, dessert, literally mean dessert. And they would pull out that piece of bread and they say, this is a celebration of the sacrifice given so that people can be freed from captivity. At that time, Jesus took that bread and said, this is my body given for you. He also, Jesus, took the Elijah cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. It's like, what? Nobody's ever referred to those things. And now you're saying you're fulfilling those things? Yeah, because in the spirit of Elijah, John has done what he was called to do. John is a great and good man. That's what Jesus is saying. And he goes on to say to them, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So you see the way Jesus lifts John up. He gives him the tender message. But then to everybody within hearing, he says, this is the greatness of John. And so John has brought us here. But then he says this, this very, again, this enigmatic thing. Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What is he saying? Is he saying that John isn't in the kingdom, having announced it? No. He's saying that John will not live to see the fulfillment of what he announced. You can be the greatest person on the planet, but if you're not in the kingdom, you've missed out. The least person in the kingdom of God is better than the greatest person who's ever walked the planet. So it's, it's, a high, it's an act of hyperbole. It's a statement of, look at the context here. Not to say John's not in the kingdom, but even the greatest human being on the planet is still lesser than the least person in the kingdom of God. So John knew that it, Jesus was the Messiah, 
the Son of God. What he didn't get to see was him being the Savior. So much so that the early Christians uh, encapsulated Jesus' title, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, uh, in the symbol of the fish. Because the, the first letters of those words in that phrase, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, take the first letters and they spell ichthus, fish. That's why you see on cars sometimes, a fish. So the Christians would, would use that as a way of, of encapsulating, this is who I worship, Jesus, the Christ, God's Son, Savior. And John never got to see the Savior piece. He's in the kingdom. But as far as he could see, and that's where the question was coming. Is this it? Are you doing what I announced? And Jesus certainly did. So Jesus is describing God's great grace to the least and the last and the lost. The very thing that John sacrificed his life for. You see, grace defines his kingdom. And goodness defines his character. Grace defines the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, and goodness describes his character. And so to understand greatness, we look to him. We don't even look to the greatest person on the planet. We look to him. And if the greatest person on the planet is in their right mind and a follower of Jesus, they'll say, no, I'm least in the kingdom. It's him that we worship. So you want to make your life great? You want to make your marriage great? You want to make America great? Jesus reveals the secret of a great life in these words at the very end of Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Everybody hurts. Everybody cries. Everybody hurts sometimes. We all need the rest that Jesus invites us to receive. He says, you will find rest for your souls. For I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest. Not as in a nap. Not as in the church, the people of God taking a little blanket and curling up for a perpetual nap. But rest as in restoration, renewal, recovery, refreshment, capacity, margin. We, yearn from Je we learn from Jesus that everything in life is better with him in it. Somebody's going to go through cancer. Would they rather go through it alone or with Jesus? Somebody's going to have a reversal in life, one, one way or the other. Do you want to go through it with Jesus or without him? So walking with Jesus is a protection from all the crazy things that can happen. It's saying that in the midst of them, Jesus is with me. Step by step, all the way through. So his yoke is love, his burden is grace, and his love and grace fills us and lifts us up. And what do you do after a rest? You rise up. You rise up. He, he calls us to experience this deep transformational power of his presence that he calls rest in order that we and him can rise up on wings like eagles. For they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will rise up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So after you rest, you rise. Rest is a metaphor then for walking in grace and living in love. Why? Because maintaining our false anxiety-ridden self exhausts us. And defeats us. If you're feeling in need of rest, if you're feeling restless, it's because you are taking on the burden that will crush you, the yoke that will break you, which is maintaining your false self. The image you want to project, not the person you really are. And inside you're saying, everybody hurts, everybody cries, everybody hurts sometimes. How do I dare admit that and embrace that, even as I embrace the Savior? 
He wanted to transform me in the midst of that. So Jesus invites us into a transforming personal relationship with him. Not just a thing we believe, but something to whom, someone to whom we belong. And in, in whom we find our being, we become uh, what we were created to be. People fully alive from the inside out. Present to him, and present to him in the context of the real world in which we live. And so he teaches us how to live. And he teaches us with gentle humility, as he did with John. And when he teaches us, he supports our capacity to do what he teaches by giving us his Holy Spirit. Constantly filling us and refilling us with his Holy Spirit. And it applies in everyday life. For example, we learn from him in conversational prayer, both speaking and listening in prayer. We learn from him. We learn from him by internalizing and applying his word. It's not just interesting facts in our head. It, it percolates into our life. It transforms us as we become conformed to his word. We learn from him in deep relationship with fellow believers. We're willing to say, you know what, I'm really hurting right now. I'm really wrestling with this. I'm really struggling. And they, they, in gentleness and respect, with great humility, they say, well, how can we pray for you? Let's talk that through. We're with you. We're for you. We learn from him as we live out our gifting and our calling. He's put something in your hand to use for his glory and his kingdom to bless people in this world. We learn from him as we practice justice. We walk in mercy. We walk humbly with God. Is what the prophet Micah said. He's told you people what is good. To practice justice, mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And then we learn from him as we serve others in his name. Not to impress them, but to bless them. So this is what rest for your soul looks like. And I leave you with this, this great observation uh, by a man named Augustine. Augustine was a Christian leader in North Africa, Algiers. He was an incredible uh, intellect. He was one of the great um, speakers and scholars of his world. He was a man's man. He was just an incredible person. He spent a lot of time in tears. He had a very hard life. But he lost dear friends. And he was such a go-for-it guy that he felt so deeply uh, that he was just a mess. And at one point, he met Jesus. And all, all of a sudden, his life started to come together. And he made this observation because of that. When he started to find his rest in Christ, he said, You have made us to know you, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. I pray that for you. I pray that for me. And so, Lord Jesus, that's our prayer, that we could find our rest in you, that we might rise up with you. We pray that in Jesus' name.